You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. Pandemic, insurrection, orange skies. It seems like every other day almost, we're living through some new, stranger-than-fiction event. And if today's guest is correct, there might be one more thing we'll soon have to add to the list as well. The discovery of extraterrestrial life. I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and... You heard me right. On the show today, we're going to hear from Professor Avi Loeb of Harvard University about a mysterious object that flew through our solar system back in 2017, known as Amuamua, and why he believes it could actually be a piece of alien technology. It might be a far-out idea, but it's coming from a pretty down-to-earth guy. Professor Loeb has served as the chair of Harvard's astronomy department and is also a member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. So it is this renowned scientist who just authored the book, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. And he joins us now to discuss his case with us. Uh, Welcome to the program, Professor Loeb. Thank you for having me. Uh, Also joining us along for this program today to help me host this one, uh, a guy who keeps our little KCBS spacecraft flying high most every weekday, KCBS anchor uh, Jeff Bell. Welcome to you, too. Thanks, Keith, and I appreciate your including me in today's show. Well, absolutely. Uh, the reason that I wanted to make sure that you were on board for this is uh, because you are well known as KCBS's resident space geek. Uh, I think it's a term that you would cop to. I would. And uh, you have that reputation because you take each and every opportunity that you have uh, to bring astronomy or space-related stories into our hourly rundowns. Uh, so I know that you've been following the story closely as well, and uh, I know that you have a lot of burning questions on this topic. So uh, we're going to get to some of those in just a little bit. Right off the bat, though, maybe you could help out those of us who were not following all this back in 2017. What is Amuamua, and why has it been getting so much attention? Well, Keith, it has indeed been getting a lot of attention, and yes, Oumuamua is a big deal. There's no question about that. NASA calls it the first object ever seen in our solar system that is known to have originated elsewhere. And just what this object is, though, is the subject of great debate. And because it was discovered as it was exiting our solar system in 2017, getting much information from it was especially difficult. In recent years, our guest, Dr. Loeb, has been calling attention to Oumuamua's many anomalies, from its unique cigar-like shape to its strange luminosity to its odd trajectory to its lack of a comet-like icy tail. And as you have noted, Keith, he concludes it's a piece of advanced technology created by an ancient alien civilization. But as we'll discuss, many of his colleagues have been pushing back against this theory and forcefully. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. We have so many science questions for you, but I'd actually like to start with this. Your book is part memoir, and in it you say that you believe your life's unusual path prepared you for your encounter with Oumuamua. You write considerably about one aspect of that path, a lifelong interest in philosophy. Can you share with us briefly how that has informed your overall approach both to navigating your research and to the controversy surrounding it? 
Yes, uh, I was born on a farm, uh, used to collect eggs every afternoon, and uh, on weekends I would drive a tractor to the hills and read philosophy books. And philosophy was very appealing to me because it gave uh, the broadest picture about uh, our place in the world and, uh, and addressed the most fundamental questions that we have. And one of them is, are we alone? Or if not, then are we the smartest kids on the block? And um, you know, often in science, uh, you make uh, headways in your career by focusing on a very narrow niche, bec uh, becoming the world expert. And in fact, that was the advice I was given when I started my career. But uh, for me, uh, it's the broader picture. It's, uh, you know, finding uh, how to interpret what we know in a way that will give us a better sense uh, of, of reality. And, and actually, there is no question that is more significant than the one we are discussing today, which is, are we the smartest kid on the block? Because we, if we are not, you know, it's just like living in a neighborhood and not really realizing who's next to us. And, you know, when my daughters were young, they tended to think that they are the smartest when they were at home. Then we brought them to the kindergarten and they found smarter kids. And that was a shock for them. And surely it will be a shock for our uh, civilization to recognize that, you know, we are not alone. We are not unique. And in fact, there are smarter kids out there uh, and it will change everything. It will change the way we perceive our aspirations, our place in the universe. It could affect religion. So given that this is such a fundamental question, one wonders, why isn't it funded? Why isn't the scientific exploration of this question part of the mainstream of science? And I try to address it in my book. Mm, yeah, you definitely do. And uh, hopefully that just gives some sense of the, the personality that is uh, bucking the trend in the scientific community right now. Uh, speaking again to Professor Avi Loeb of Harvard University. And let's get into that case that you're making. So we see this object uh, in the sky back in 2017. We don't get a lot of data on it, but what we do get is all very strange, difficult to explain. You're saying that one of the best ways that we could explain it is as an object that was created in a far-off solar system by some other intelligent being. Why does that seem like a reasonable explanation to you? Well, because of the anomalies that this object showed. So first of all, it, uh, the light, the sunlight reflected from it was varying by a factor of 10 as it was tumbling, which implied that it has a very extreme shape, uh, most likely pancake-shaped and the, the amount of area on the sky changed by a factor of 10 as it was tumbling. And so it, it's at least 10 times longer than, than it was wide. And, uh, and so you have a pancake-shaped object, and then it exhibited an extra push away from the sun without a cometary tail. And uh, the only way to explain that push is if it was reflecting sunlight, and that gave it the push just like a sail. Uh, and it means that it must be very thin for that, must have a lot of area for its weight in order to be pushed enough. And nature doesn't make sails. We make them to, uh, for space exploration. It's called a light sail, and that's the technology we are currently developing. I should say that only a few months ago, there was another object discovered called the 2020 SO. Uh, it was found to be pushed away from the sun by, again, reflecting sunlight, no cometary tail. And then it was traced to be a rocket booster that we launched in 1966. And so that is clearly artificial. We know that we produced it. The only question is, who produced Oumuamua? 
In science classes, students learn about Occam's razor, the idea that the simplest solution is likely the right one. How does that factor into your own theories about Oumuamua? Right. So my approach to this subject is the same that I applied throughout my career to other anomalies that we have, you know. Um, And basically what you do is you try to come up with an explanation and then other people come up with alternative explanations. You put all of them on the table. You look at the evidence and see which one is most plausible. And then you try to collect as much evidence as possible to substantiate, you know, that uh, preference for, for one explanation. And so it's it's all driven by evidence and clues. But But at any point in time, you can assess which possible explanation sounds more plausible. And uh, in the case of Oumuamua, you know, I proposed the, an artificial origin at first. And then uh, in the subsequent couple of years, there were other suggestions by uh, scientists that said, oh, maybe it's a natural object. But all of these suggestions contemplated something that we have never seen before. Uh, for example, a hydrogen iceberg, a chunk of frozen hydrogen, such that when it evaporates, you won't see the cometary tail because hydrogen is transparent. Uh, the problem with that is such a chunk the size of a football field. It wouldn't survive the journey. Uh, we showed it in a paper that analyzed you know, what would happen to it when it absorbs starlight, and we showed that it, it would be short-lived. So it cannot explain this object. Uh, another possibility was uh, a, a collection of dust particles, sort of like a dust bunny that you find at home, but it needs to be about a hundred times less dense than air so that the reflection of sunlight will give it enough push. It needs to be lightweight. And uh, the problem with that is if you imagine a cloud of dust particles, a thousand times less dense than air, getting as close as Oumuamua was to the sun, it will be warmed up by hundreds of degrees. And it's hard for me to see how the material strength will hold it together. So again, it's not likely to survive. And then there was a suggestion, maybe it's a piece of a bigger object uh, that was uh, broken up because of the gravitational tide of of a star when it passed passed close to a star. The problem with that is you would often get um, elongated shape, cigar shape. And Oumuamua at the 90% level, based on fitting the reflected sunlight from it, was most likely pancake shaped. So it doesn't quite fit that data, uh, a cigar shaped object. And so uh, altogether, you know, these are the three possibilities put on the table and they have problems. And so I say, okay, well, they have problems. So the uh, possibility of a light sail or an artificial origin is plausible and we should keep it in mind and get more evidence on the next object that comes along, you know, get a photograph of it. All right, and we're going to dig into some of that more forward-looking science in just a little second. But uh, first, I want to remind listeners that this is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. Today, we are putting a heavy emphasis on the beyond there, uh, speaking with Professor Avi Loeb of Harvard University about his new book, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth, in which he makes the case that a mysterious object that flew through our solar system back in 2017 very well could have been a piece of alien technology. Uh, I'm Keith McConey, joined today by my colleague KCBS anchor Jeff Bell. So uh, talking about some of the possibilities that uh, could explain this object, some of the uh, natural possibilities that could explain this object. Uh, We just heard uh, about Occam's razor. Uh, Another phrase that comes up is, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary 
evidence. And while maybe we've ruled out most of the natural objects that we can think of, uh, we haven't seen aliens before. We've seen a lot of natural objects. So don't we want some huge, you know, case closed kind of evidence before we start leaping to the uh, uh, conclusion that this might be uh, of of alien origin? Shouldn't the, the bar be quite high before we start bringing aliens into the conversation? Well, the problem with that approach is that uh, if you're not open to discovering new things, you will never discover them. So in the context of searching for technological signatures or relics, uh, if, if there is no funding for that search, if any proposal is ridiculed so that young people never engage themselves in the search, uh, then you will not find anything. Uh, it's sort of like stepping on the grass and then arguing, look, the grass doesn't grow. Uh, and uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. My point about this is, you know, we, we don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. You know, we call it dark matter and it could be different types of particles. And we've been searching for decades for specific types of particles that people proposed and invested hundreds of millions of dollars in that search. Uh, and that's legitimate. You know, that's part of the mainstream. But uh, why would the search for technological signatures uh, be funded at a level that is a thousand times less? when it appeals to the public much more and it's much more relevant for our lives. Who cares what the dark matter particle is? It doesn't affect our life in any you know, conceivable way. It's just an of academic curiosity. But if we do find that we are not the smartest kid on the block, it would have a profound impact on our lives. So my point is, this should be part of the mainstream in science and it shouldn't be ridiculed. It should be considered as a viable option when you see anomalies, especially on the first object that we find from outside the solar system, you know, we should entertain the possibility that it's a plastic bottle on the beach. You know, that most of the time we see rocks, but it might be an, a, an artificial or object. And, and we, it shouldn't, the bar should not be higher for that option compared to other options that all invoke something that we have never seen before. You know, if there was a natural explanation that said, oh, you know, it's a behavior of an object we have seen before and it sort of explains everything, I would say, fine, that, that makes sense. Uh, but all of these, you know, like a hydrogen iceberg or a dust cloud or things like that, you know, that, that still stretches uh, our imagination in a way that is not very different from the possibility that it's artificial. So I would say, we don't need extraordinary evidence because nobody came with with a, a natural explanation for this. So we should just consider entertain the uh, these anomalies as a mot motivator for us to find more clues on the next object that comes along. And rather than say it's never aliens, you know, which is the current attitude, uh, and I think the public pretty much endorses my view on this because. You know, the book is a tremendous success so far and there is a huge We're here. feedback. Yeah, and we are discussing it. But I would really wish that the academic community would embrace it and just, you know, let's go together and find what, what the answer to this question is. On this same topic, Professor, you reference in the book that Galileo was forced to recant his theory that the Earth circles the sun. I know you're not comparing yourself to Galileo, but do you see that as evidence that controversial scientific hypotheses have a long history of drawing pushback? Well, I, I would think that we would have grown out of that uh, uh, heard the uh, groupthink uh, approach. Um, but, it, well, it's not clear uh, in the context of of this discussion that, that the, the mainstream community is 
uh, embracing an open discussion and allowing uh, such a possibility to be entertained and wishing to, for example, rule it. Uh, even if you object this possibility, the appropriate scientific process would argue that you should seek evidence that it is a rock, okay? And we know that it, even if it's natural, it's something that we have never seen before. So you should be driven to the suggestion that we should collect as much data as possible on future objects. And one way to do that is to deploy cameras within the orbit of the Earth around the Sun, such that the next object that comes along will pass close to such a camera and will get a photograph. And, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, it's worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. I wouldn't need to write the book if we had a photograph. It would be clear whether it's artificial or natural. And I'm just saying, even if you think it's natural, it's something that we have never seen before, because nobody came with an explanation that is something that we, we had seen before. So we will learn something new. So why is there reluctance to even consider the possibility of artificial? Why, why wouldn't people just say, okay, well, let's allow it to be on the table. We don't believe it's the correct explanation. We think it's most likely natural, but you know, let's just figure it out. Let's just deploy cameras. Let's do this and that. Given the importance of this question, you know, why not invest in it as much money as we invest in the search for dark matter? Why not make it part of the mainstream? And I argue for space archaeology, basically searching for relics of civilizations that existed in the past. Uh, you know, we can't have a phone conversation with the Mayan culture because it's not around anymore. But we can find relics of the Mayans in archaeological sites. And just exactly the same way, we can search for relics of cultures that existed in the past billions of years, you know, throughout the galaxy. That sounds to me like a very plausible field of research, but nobody else is advocating for it right now. Right. And uh, you spoke a second ago about reluctance. Uh, we've been seeing more than reluctance to looking into this. We've seen outright pushback and uh, in some cases hostility, a lot of motive questioning, a lot of your colleagues questioning uh, why it is that you're making this case, why it is that you're uh, coming on media programs such as ours. Uh, so uh, definitely uh, stern pushback that uh, somewhat surprising to witness. And uh, you make the case uh, in your book that it speaks to some broader problems within the scientific community and uh, the ways that we are approaching scientific questions right now. Uh, obviously, we are not scientists ourselves. So help us bring us into that world for a second. What is the problem that you're seeing and what might we be missing out on in our scientific inquiry? I mean, we just uh, discovered uh, gravitational waves and we found the Higgs boson. What are the other discoveries that might be out there that we're missing out on right now? Well, yeah, so the, I, I see the main problem uh, in, in the way that scientists are motivated and they are motivated to maintain an image where they make very few mistakes. Uh, they don't put skin into the game. You know, there, there, is, there are communities of theoretical physicists that never make a prediction that can be tested experimentally. And, you know, that has been the tradition of physics that you put some skin, you make predictions, sometimes you may be wrong. Of course, you risk your, your image, but that's part of the business. You know, if you want to discover new things, you have to take some risk. And that is not taken. But at the same time, there is a lot of, of groupthink and, uh, uh, you know, some, some uh, social uh, effects uh, dominate the way that scientists think. And uh, I find it unfortunate because we should be driven uh, by evidence. 
so you mentioned the discovery of gravitational waves. And uh, for many decades, uh, again, this subject was ridiculed. I remember giving a lecture in 2013 on gravitational wave astrophysics as a new frontier. It was in a winter school to graduate students. And as soon as I started, another lecturer stood up and said, why are you wasting the time of these students speaking on a subject that will never be of importance for their future careers? And just two years later, in 2015, the first gravitational wave signal was detected by LIGO. These students were still doing their PhD. So it illustrates really a, a fundamental problem in the open-mindedness of, and, and by the way, the lecturer that made this comment was 20 years younger than I am. It's not a matter of age, it's a matter of uh, approach to doing science. And uh, I can give another example. In 1952, Otto Struve, an astronomer, suggested that a very efficient way to find planets would be if there is a planet like Jupiter close to a star, then it will tug the star back and forth and we could detect the motion of the star quite easily. And also if it passes in front of the star, we could see uh, the diminution in light that received from the star. And uh, he suggested that we search for that. But for 40 years, Time allocation committees on telescopes refused to give time to search for that because they said, you know, that Jupiter in the solar system is far away and it has a very small effect on the motion of the sun. And uh, we know why it's far and therefore there is no reason to waste telescope time in looking for such systems. And uh, only in 1995, by chance, such a system was discovered. And... Uh, 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 that opened a new field of exoplanets, looking for planets around other stars. And um, the Nobel Prize was awarded for that a few years ago. So you might say, okay, so it was only four decades of delay. Well, first of all, you know, it's uh, reducing the efficiency of science because if, if people were open-minded and would look for such systems four decades earlier, we, may we would have arrived at additional discoveries earlier. But also, you know, this is a baby that was born late. There must be a lot of babies that were never born because they, the suggestions were completely blocked. We don't even know about them. They were ridiculed. And that's very unfortunate because science is about innovation. And you find groups of people that are innovating, uh, you know, doing blue sky research in, commercial, in the commercial sector, in companies like, you know, Google, SpaceX and so forth. And I find it really surprising that the culture of innovation is more common in the private sector than in the academic setting, because in academia, you get tenure. So that gives you the job security where you can pursue ideas that are out of the box, yet it's not done as much as in the commercial sector. All right. A lot of really interesting points raised. And uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. But uh, real quick, I want to remind listeners that this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Medconi, joined once again by KCBS anchor Jeff Bell. Today on the program, finding evidence of life beyond our own planet. This sci-fi dream may have become a reality if today's guest is right about his hunch that a mysterious object from a few years back was in fact an ancient piece of alien technology. That's Harvard professor Avi Loeb, who's laid out his theory in his new book, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond 
Earth and uh, Jeff Bell. You've got a lot of burning questions left, I'm sure, so I'm going to give you a little bit more time to ask them. I do, I do. I have to ask about the fascination with this topic and your book, Professor. I I imagine that you couldn't have imagined the interest that it would generate. Um, You write at the end of your book, if I attract one child somewhere in the world into science as a result of my answering the demands of the media, I will be satisfied. Let's talk a little bit about science education. What do you want kids to take from this story? Well, I should tell you an anecdote. Uh, A couple of days ago, I got uh, an email from Malawi. Uh, a woman was uh, writing to me that it's a great book. She just finished it and uh, that she was uh, very excited by the content and she might, she, she wants to learn more about astronomy. So I told her exactly what you said. I, I told her, you know, I told my publisher that uh, if one uh, person in the world uh, becomes a scientist as a result of reading my book, I would be satisfied. And I asked her, is that person you? And she said, maybe. <laughs> so I may already be satisfied. And it's not because the book is on the bestseller list of the New York Times or bestseller list in France or Germany, as it is. Uh, it's because one person at least confessed that it uh, triggered interest in, in science. You know? and, and that woman also said that she, had, she has a daughter that might be interested. So you know, that's really my motivation. The younger generation will perhaps bring the change because, you know, just like during the French Revolution, you know, uh, Marie Antoinette was not very much in favor of a change, right? So the people that cultivate the current culture in academia, they're benefiting from it. They will not change the current culture. They would ridicule me and just say business as usual. But the younger generation, if it gets the message, could bring a new culture into place. And that's where my hopes lie. We started on a philosophical note. Let's wrap this up on a philosophical note as well. You write a great deal about the value of humility in science and in life. You also say it would be very arrogant of us to think that we're alone in the universe. Uh, Can you speak a bit more about your thoughts on how humility and arrogance actually have shaped scientific discovery? Right. I mean, it started with uh, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle that uh, suggested that we are at the center of the universe. He had a beautiful model where there were spheres around us, centered on us. And for a thousand years, people believed him because it flatters our ego. It's just like my daughters at home would tend to think that the world centers on them. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, after Galileo and Copernicus convinced us that the Earth uh, moves around the sun, uh, we realized we're not at the center of, of, of the physical universe, but people still prefer to believe that we are special and unique and uh, we are very smart and intelligent. Uh, you know, I, from astronomy, I get the sense that we are not at the center of anything. We are not privileged in any way. It's our illusion. A much better assumption is we are typical. That we are just like ants on a sidewalk. And uh, we shouldn't expect anyone to pay attention to us. You know, Fermi's paradox asks, where is everybody? Well, they don't care about us. We are out there in the dark, one ant out of many, most of them dead by now, you know, and we better look out and see, you know, the reality as it is. And my point is, let's get a a reality check about our neighborhood, who lived there in the past, who lives there now, rather than assume that we are unique and special and privileged. 
Because, you know, when I met my wife, she had uh, friends that used to suggest that there would be a prince charming on a white horse showing up and making them a marriage proposal. That never happened. Why do we expect that we are so unique and special that someone will visit us and then we will find if aliens exist? Actually, what we need to do is be proactive and, you know, search for them. Well, I I think I speak for Jeff as well when I say that we could uh, keep this up all day. This has been a really fascinating conversation, but uh, we know that you're a busy guy and you have uh, a lot more places to be. So we're going to have to round it out there. Uh, We have been speaking to Avi Loeb, a Harvard professor of science and astronomy, whose new book is Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Professor Loeb, uh, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Jeff Bell, thank you for being on the program as well. Thanks for including me, Keith. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.